Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 tonight. I love that we had a Christmas hymn inviting, or not just praising Jesus for coming to this world, but inviting him to come into our lives, which is actually the subject of our passage tonight from Ephesians chapter 3. It's actually a prayer of the Apostle Paul for Jesus to make our hearts his temple and to abide in us and pour out his love in our hearts. And so we consider then the subject of prayer tonight, Ephesians 3 verses 14 through 19. There are some words about prayer from Leonard Ravenhill which have pricked my heart since the day I read them in college. And they go like this. The church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who pray. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. People who are not praying are playing. The ministry of preaching is open to a few, The ministry of praying is open to every child of God. Tithes may build the church, but tears will give it life. In the matter of effective praying, never have so many left so much to so few. Well, they say if you want to humble a Christian... Ask about their prayer life. I included those words at the top of a Bible study I wrote on this text almost 20 years ago. And I would be ashamed to tell you how infrequently I frequent the prayers of the Bible and I frequent the throne of grace. It's so easy, friends, to be humble about prayer because no Christian is good at it. Jesus is. But it does teach us to be teachable. I think being humbled, it teaches us to be needy. We all know what it's feel like to feel guilty for not praying more, to feel selfish for praying only for ourselves, to feel worldly for only praying for health and money, though Jesus cares for our physical needs, or to feel weary of praying mindlessly that God might bless others without really knowing Or contemplating what we mean and want when we pray that. Paul shows us here how to pray more effectively. But not, before we read it, but not, dear friends, not because we will be heard if we only get our words just right. No, 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 no. We have access to the Father, not in our own name, using a magic formula of words or anything like that. But we have access to the Father Through God the Son, with boldness and confidence, like a child to their father, through the mediation of God the Son, by the help of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus gets us heard, and in him we can come without fear, even in our guilt. We need to remember that, friends, when we don't know what to say, Jesus is interceding for us. But also when we feel guilty about how little we pray, we come to God through Christ. Not on our own merits. And that's 
important as we read a passage like this in which he tells us to pray by his modeling of it. And he shows us what to pray for. And so let's look at these things together from God's word. Let me invite you to hear it beginning at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, do that. Write it on our hearts. Capture our affections. Drive us to our knees. Show us Christ as you do it. And show us the love of Christ tonight. Teach us your word. Impress it on our hearts that we might see and believe. Taste and experience. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul shows us then how to pray more effectively for one another. He does so not out of a sense of guilt, but because on the one hand, he's seen the glory of what God is doing in bringing people to God himself and bringing them together as one body, one humanity. That's chapters two and three. So on the one hand, he's seen the glory of that and he wants you to experience it. On the other hand, he loves the Ephesians and he cares about them. And so he pours his out his heart for them. And I want to say then a few words about the structure of the prayer and then the substance of it. So two big things tonight. First, the structure. I want to say something about our incentive to pray and the posture of prayer and the organization of it and the anticipation of it. Think, think, think of what Paul says here. The incentive to pray. Why pray? Well, what is God determined to do for his people? This prayer will help you know what God is determined to do. What should we pray for Christians? This will help you know what to pray for Christians. The two go together. They are the same thing. It's what God determined to do that we then pray for. In other words, Scripture discloses discloses God's will for his people and turns around and says, ask for that to be done in God's people. We ask God to make it happen because God is the only one who can Make it happen. And here Paul's praying for the family in the Lord. Fellow believers. He, he says elsewhere we should pray for kings and all those in authority. In another place his heart cries out for his fellow Jews who don't believe. And he longs before God that they would believe. He, he prays for unbelievers. But here he prays. He prays for fellow believers. We pray for people we love, not knowing if God will save them, but earnestly asking for it. We pray for people we love whom he has saved, and we can be sure God intends what we're praying for them will in fact come to pass if it's in accordance with his word that he's revealed. 
In other words, he's, he's making us more like Jesus. This is how he's doing it. It's his will, and we ask him to do it. And we can be sure that he'll answer. I know when I pray for you, and you for me, that he wants me to know the love of Christ. He wants Christ to dwell in my heart, all these things. And so that's the incentive to pray. We're very confident. This is what God wants. But, but notice the posture. He kneels before the Father, he says. So there's a posture here of, of humility, uh, a humble attitude. Must we kneel when we pray? No, Jesus stood when he prayed. It was the common practice of the Jews to stand when they prayed. The Bible shows people praying when they're sitting praying when they're prostrate, face on the ground, praying in all kinds of postures, even when you're lying on your bed. Though some of us fall asleep quickly that way. We don't have to kneel. But we might ask, do we ever kneel? Do we ever? Not to look pious to others, but to aid our piety, to express our piety, to aid our heart's sense of we're in need, And to reveal that we are, do we ever? That's his posture in praying. He kneels. And then the organization of it. This is a well-ordered and structured prayer. One thing builds on another. He prays that we would be strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in the heart. And that we would then be rooted and grounded in love, the love of Christ, so that we could comprehend with our minds the love of Christ and experience that love and then be filled. One thing precedes another. It's well organized. He knows what he wants. He knows the end and he knows the middle and he knows the beginning. And my point is this. This isn't a thoughtless prayer. It's not spontaneous and haphazard. It's, it involves good thinking on his part. That makes it No less genuine, no less sincere, no less heartfelt. Now, you can pray like this in a heartfelt and mindless way, of course. We can all pray this unbelievingly. But if you do, don't blame the content and structure of the prayer. Blame the depraved, distracted heart. The Bible is filled with written prayers from beginning to end so that we would learn how to pray, what to pray for, the language to use in our prayers. Some Christians think, however, that for prayer to be sincere, vital, and authentic, it somehow must be spontaneous, unrehearsed, unpracticed, unthoughtful. We say to ourselves, you know, if it truly came from the heart, it would just leap out of me one day. But if the mind worked it over, it's too calculated. It can't be authentic. Some people think that way. But consider the opposite view. I mean, how often do you see this? A reporter sticks a microphone in the face of some important person, asks them to comment on something, and they blurt out the first thing that comes to mind, and it's ridiculous, juvenile. Or so convoluted you can't make sense of it. And they spend the next six months embarrassingly trying to say, well, what I really meant was this. I mean, you know, my my well-organized and thoughtful answer to that question, if you'll give me a hearing in the public ever again, 
would be something other than what I blurted out in the spur of the moment. See, it's not wrong to to, to pray immediately and spontaneously on something. Neither, we might say, is it wrong to simply sigh and groan and pray even without words because you don't know what words to use, but you're before the Lord, weeping, anxious. Romans 8 speaks of this. But it's also not wrong to plan what you pray. (laughs) There are lots of biblical guides to prayer. 150 psalms of praise and lament covering joy and sorrow, anxiety and fear, love, thanksgiving, trust. There's lots of things to learn, not only in the Psalms, but by the prayers of Jesus and by the prayers of the Apostle Paul. Maybe you'll learn to use their words. Maybe you'll feel free to write your own words based on the patterns you're seeing. But it's not wrong to think it through. Nobody ever did anything really well. I don't think whoever did it totally spontaneously, no gourmet meal was ever created that way. So thoughtful organization is good. It's okay to know what to say, and it's okay to not be sure what to say. But if we're in a rut praying, and you find yourself always saying the same things, you know, now I lay me down to sleep and I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I die before I wake... I pray the Lord my soul to take. Or, dearest Jesus, meek and mild, watch all night this little child, and God bless everybody in the whole wide world. Mama taught me that when I was probably two. But I think it's the only bedtime prayer she ever taught me. It's not wrong. There's some good theology there. It's not, not wrong. But, but there's more we can pray for in a more thoughtful way. And so... Prayer is a reflection of your desires, friend. And and why not desire what Paul desires and then learn to desire it more and more and then make it your prayer? That's the organization. And then there's an anticipation. He bows his knee before the Father and he believes that the Father will. And he asks that the Father will answer that prayer in accordance with the riches he has in glory. Do you see that language, friends? He prays that God, from his abundance, would answer this prayer. What what does it mean when a wealthy person gives according to their wealth, not simply out of their wealth? Well, if a millionaire gives you 50 bucks, they gave you out of their wealth. If they give you 50,000 bucks, they gave in accordance with their wealth. The greater the wealth, the greater the gift must be to be in accordance with. And God's riches are limitless, and that's the measure of his gift. And Paul has big expectations that God will do this. And so what does he pray for? Then what's the substance of it? What does he pray for? He prays for six things. A different way to categorize them, but let me take you on a journey of six steps, six things to pray for one another as we climb this staircase higher and higher. In the first place, notice what he prays for, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell, uh, pardon me, before that, end of verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. 
He prays that the inner person would be strengthened by God, by the Spirit of God. Now, now right off the bat, you see there that, that Paul understands Christianity to be about so much more than just forgiveness of sins. However extraordinary that is. However incredible it is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you are free and bound for heaven. Paul knows there's more. There's more. There's the empowerment, the enablement, the help of the Holy Spirit to walk with God, to do what you need to do. And he longs for that too, that we would be strengthened in the inner man. Doesn't the Spirit of God already live in a believer, we might ask the question? Yes, you're already a temple of the Holy Spirit. We saw way back in chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your everlasting inheritance. The Father's already put the Holy Spirit in you. There is no such thing as a believer in Christ without the Holy Spirit of God. And yet we need to increasingly be strengthened by that Spirit in the inner being. If you don't sense your need to be strengthened in this way, then maybe you're not wrestling with sin, not fighting sin. Maybe you've given up fighting sin, or maybe you've never yet even begun to fight sin. Because it is the experience of Christian that there is an internal war. Galatians 5 says the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit against the flesh. And these two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us. Christians feel a sense of that weakness in themselves. There's something in them that wants to be like Jesus and knows that they're not. And so however faint that desire is in you, it's in you if you are in Christ. It may be quenched, it may be very small, but it is a flickering flame the Lord will never snuff out. So we need to ask for strength. Uh, And pardon my failure of knowing how to pronounce Russian, but in Alexander Solzhenitsyn's A Day in the Life of Ivan, that's probably the English way, and I, my English majors are going to destroy me on this, but Denisovich or something like that. But Ivan endures all the horrors of a Soviet prison camp. Solzhenitsyn himself had experienced this. And he writes uh, this story, a day in a life in a prison camp. And one day Ivan is praying with his eyes closed when a fellow prisoner notices him and says with ridicule, prayers won't help you get out of here any faster. Ivan opens his eyes and he says, I do not pray to get out of prison, but to do the will of God. You see, he's a man who knew that he needed strength by the spirit to do what he was called to do, to live for God. That's the first thing he prays for. The second thing is that so that believers may have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. That's the second thing at verse 17. The purpose of the Spirit's work in the inner man is that Christ might dwell, take up residence in your heart. The indwelling of Christ here. We might pause to say this. That's the work of the Spirit of God, to bring Christ to dwell in you. And so we have perhaps charismatic friends who will say, well, you need to first get Jesus and later get some kind of extra 
experience of the Holy Spirit, would you notice that Paul here says, actually, you need the Spirit of God at work in your hearts in order to form Christ in you, in your heart. The Spirit is not an add-on, an extra, a supplementary thing. The Spirit forms Christ in you. And we might ask this question again, well, aren't Christians already indwelt by Christ? They're already indwelt by the Spirit. Aren't they already indwelt by Christ? Absolutely. If you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, Christ is in you the hope of glory, just as you are in him. Absolutely. But nevertheless, it's a thing of degrees. Just as the inward strengthening of the Spirit grows or ebbs, so the the indwelling of Christ in taking up residence and making your heart his home is a thing of degrees. You may have lots or you may have little. Every Christian has some. Too many of us, your pastor included, has far too little of Christ formed in us. Paul prays that we'll have lots and lots and more and more. See, he's using, he's using one of two Greek words very pointedly. He's not using the word he, he could have used to describe somebody inhabiting a, inhabiting a place as a stranger. Uh, Someone who's an alien living away from their home and they're just visiting. He actually said that about us in chapter 2. We were far from the Lord and we weren't a part of his kingdom and then he made us his own. And not not a stranger, but somebody who lives. But, But here he uses a different word. He uses the word for to settle down in and make it your home. To take up permanent residence. So you have to picture, as D.A. Carson says, a couple buying their first home. They scrap the money together. They, they can't stand the black and silver wallpaper on the bedroom walls. There's a mound of trash in the basement. The kitchen was designed for the convenience of the plumber and not the cook. The roof leaks in a couple of places, you know. The insulation's inadequate. It gets cold. The electrical box is too small. The lighting of the bathroom is poor. But hey, who's really paying attention? It's our first home. And this young couple is happy. And they're grateful. But as the months go by and the years go by, the wallpaper gets replaced. The kitchen gets remodeled. The roof gets fixed so it doesn't leak. Central air conditioning is brought into the home. And as the family grows... A few bedrooms are made in the basement of the house and a wing is thrown off the side for a study. 25 years later, the husband one day looks at his wife and says, you know, I really like this place. It it really suits us. It, it, It really demonstrates our tastes, likes, interests. We did the work ourselves. This is our home. This is what Christ is doing in you. Christ by his spirit taking up residence, finding the equivalent of a mountain of trash, ugly wallpaper and a leaking roof. And he begins the task of removing, renovating, and expanding room by room. So in the library of your mind filled with trash and worthless things, he throws it out to bring in the good, the true, and the beautiful. So that in the dining room of your appetites, disordered by sin, eating junk food spiritually. He gives you a taste for milk and meat. And so likewise in the closet where secret sins hide like spiders, he comes in and he sweeps out the cobwebs and he kills those wicked beasts 
And so likewise, in the plumbing that's stopped up by the foul filth, he cleans the pipes and makes it run again. This is what Christ is doing. That's the image at some level. He's building a beautiful home for himself in you, making you more and more to love what he loves, to delight in what he delights in, to hate what he hates, so that you'll be more and more like him. This is what he's doing. You need more and more of him doing. You need him to do more and more of this in you, rather. So that being rooted, third thing, being rooted and grounded in love. Okay, rooted, he says. Rooted like a tree with deep roots, right? A botanical reference. Love grows in the soil Uh, We are to grow in the soil of love. We need to be deeply rooted and nourished in it. Uh, The the gardener's rule of thumb is if you're going to plant a $5 tree, you dig a $50 hole. Why? Because that tree is going to grow and it's going to need room to grow for its roots or it will never grow. That's what Christ is doing. He's rooting us in his love And he's grounding us, an architectural reference here. He's giving us a solid foundation to stabilize us for maturity's sake. Again, Don Carson here in his book, The Spiritual, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, a book on Paul's prayers, wonderful, wonderful book, tells the story of a colleague at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, a colleague named Perry Downs, who he and his wife are foster parents. At one time, they'd had as many as 20 different children living in their home temporarily before they were passed on to loving, permanent, adopted families. And one day the state called them up and said, well, we've got a little different situation here. We we don't have a newborn, but we wonder if you'd be willing to take the case. And they said, well, tell us about it. Well, it's two boys, twin boys. They're 18 months old. Would you be willing to take them in? Well, sure. Well, okay, but one other thing. They have been badly abused in the families where they have been before you. In fact, they've had nine different homes in 18 months, and the psychologists tell us that the, their affect, their emotional response has been so deeply damaged by their experiences that they are very, frankly, abnormal in the way that they respond to parents and to adults. They're not sure if these kids will ever be right. Will you take them? We will take them, they said. And the first night they get these boys home and they put them in bed and they're down the hall and Perry and his wife are kind of, you know, in the living room and they hear something really, really strange. What do they hear? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So they creep down to the bedroom because it's 7.30 at night and these are twin 18-month-old boys. So they're curious and they find the boys with the blankets pulled over their heads, muffling their sobs because they had been so badly beaten in the homes that they had previously been placed whenever they cried. Well, those twin boys ended up in the Downs home for not six weeks or six months, but for well over a year. And when they were finally placed in a permanent, loving adoptive home, the social workers and the psychologists met with the Downs as the boys were being transferred to their permanent home, and they said, something amazing has happened to these boys. They're responding affectively and emotionally like healthy children ought to respond what had happened they had experienced the love of parents 
the kind of love God intends people to experience from their parents. And it had literally matured them. You and I need to be rooted and grounded in the love of our loving Heavenly Father. Because without it, we are a mess of insecurities. If you aren't rooted and grounded and established and convinced he loves you, there is spiritual neuroses going on that will drive you half crazy with anxiety. Does he love me? Does he love me not? I've got to be better than them. Maybe then he'll love me. I'm not better than them. I hate those people. God must not love me because I'm not like them. Oh, friends, insecurity will drive you nuts and manifest itself in all kinds of immature ways spiritually. We need to be rooted, grounded in love and more than that. And this is what God can do in us. But more than that, we need to understand the love. And here he uses the word to comprehend with all the saints. What is the height and breadth and length and width is the love of Christ. And and by comprehending means actually mentally to understand it. We need the power of Christ to help us understand it. What is this love of Christ? Well, in the 19th century, when Napoleon's armies opened a prison that had been used by the Spanish Inquisition, they found the remains of a prisoner who had been incarcerated for his faith. The dungeon was underground, no windows. Uh, The body had long since been decayed. They just had an ankle bracelet tied up to an ankle bone, but they found on the wall above where that person had lived, imprisoned, they found that this faithful soldier of Christ had drawn a cross, and above it, in Spanish, had written the word for height, and below it, the word for depth, and to the left, the word for width, and to the right, the word for length. The height, depth, length, width of the love of Christ, as this prisoner said in the cross. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. But what it affirms is absolutely true. But so does this. John Stott says, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, Jew and Gentile, from every tribe and tongue and language and people. And it's long enough to last for eternity. And it is deep enough to find you in the deepest pit. And it is high enough to take you into the happiness of heaven itself. This is what the love of Christ is to his people. And we'll close with that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen us with power. By your spirit in the inner man that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that we would be rooted and grounded in love and be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and breadth and length and depth of the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do that, we pray, because you can do beyond all that we ask or imagine exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or imagine through Christ Jesus our Lord for we pray in his name amen